Welcome to the broadcast of the First Baptist Church in Riverton, Kansas. We're so glad you joined us today as Pastor Aaron Williams shares a timely message from God's Word. At FBCR, the vision is to first and foremost build the church on the solid rock truth of Jesus Christ. Second, to see people saved and set free by accepting Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior and then following Him in believer's baptism. Third, we want to develop fully committed disciples of Christ who will grow spiritually in their faith and worship Him in spirit and in truth. And finally, to send an army of believers into the world as missionaries, sharing the gospel with those who don't know the Lord. Jesus is the rock that won't move. His word is strong and powerful, and His love can never be undone. Now with today's message, here's Brother Aaron. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible... I'm going to ask you to open to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I am starting the first of a three-series teaching on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's important that we prepare our hearts, we prepare our understanding on the Word of God for what we are getting ready to celebrate and worship God for. We will be... In the midst of Resurrection Day, sooner than later, a few weeks will come quickly. And this is a time that we really need to understand what's going on. And I believe that if you've been in the church very long, you've celebrated what we call Easter many times. I again will use the statement Resurrection Day because that's always my focus. It's the day of resurrection. It's amazing how the world will take what God has given to us And begin to put just a small twist on it. And even though it may not lose all of its significance, the idea is that it could sway us from the biblical foundational truth of why God celebrates and has us as a church celebrate these monumental moments in Scripture and that will hold themselves eternally to be true. So if you have the Bible open, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 i like to read to you the very first verse through the fourth verse. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel, which I preached unto you, which also you have received, and wherein you stand, by which also you are saved. If you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain, for I delivered you first of all, That which I received, how Christ died for our sin, according to the Scripture. And that He was buried, and that He rose again, the third day, according to the Scripture. Here is the biblical definition of the gospel. And maybe you go a lot of places, you could hear a lot of sermons, and and you take for granted, what is the gospel? pastor. We say it a lot. We preach and say, well, I went and heard the gospel preached. Or maybe as a pastor, I would say, I've preached the gospel. This text of scripture gives us a biblical definition for the gospel. What is the gospel? The death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Lord. If you are saved, born again, blood-bought, You have come to a position and a place in your life at a time period and you've been convicted of your sin and you said and responded to this conviction, this knocking of the Holy Spirit upon your life and you knew then that you were a sinner. That somewhere along the way, truth 
had come up against the heart, up against the life, and you said yes to Christ, placing all of your failure and all of your sin upon the work of God, the gospel, then you have identified with the faith that is the faith of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is He's he's dead, buried, and resurrected. Now this generation's disputing. We won't worry about that. We keep teaching truth. Many generations have disputed the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's not a new thing. But the new thing may be that we need to be instructed as Christians what the Bible says concerning His death, concerning His burial, concerning His resurrection. I want you to give a reason to every person you meet for the hope that lies within you. I want you to have the foundation of your life built on the truth of what God's Word says about you. And isn't it easy to get in a situation and maybe you go to work this week and you say, I can't wait to celebrate Resurrection Day. And they say, you mean Easter? And again, I say, I'm not celebrating a bunny laying an egg. I'm celebrating God raising Jesus from the tomb. And that's the difference of what the world wants to twist the gospel into and what the gospel actually says. So as a Christian, I'm thankful that God raised him because if he had not raised Christ from the dead, then when I was a young man convicted in my sin, I would have never walked down an aisle to respond to the one who knocked upon my heart knowing that I also then could identify with the death of Jesus Christ in that who I was needed to die, be buried because what I was living was simply no good. And I had hope that God would raise my death to life. The Bible said you can pass from death to life. This may not be a popular type preaching, but I'm not running for a political office in this pulpit. I'm preaching the gospel. The gospel is death, burial, and resurrection. So I want to begin to look at a few more verses in chapter 15. Let's look at verse 14. And if Christ is not risen, then is our preaching vain and your faith is also vain. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that He raised Christ, whom He raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised? And if Christ is not raised, your faith is vain, and you are yet in your sin. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. That's a real heavy text, real straightforward. It basically says, if Christ did not raise from the dead, our faith is vain. If Christ didn't come out of the tomb bodily, what we preach is empty. If Christ did not come forth from the tomb, our sins are not forgiven. If Christ did not come forth literally bodily out of the tomb, raised by God after death, if He didn't do that, all who have died before us have no hope. They're perished. It's amazing that I stand at the graveside so many times and preach the gospel, and more and more in our country, as you go to do a funeral, they begin to say something like, we don't want you to preach a whole lot. Don't preach too long. Well, you've got the wrong preacher, if you call me. Because I'm going to preach the gospel. Because what else would you stand by a graveside and preach? I'd like to ask and challenge the atheist of the day. I want to hear your message at the graveside. 
sir. I'd like to hear you in a pulpit somewhere preach and dispute. I've met with atheists. I've met with agnostic. I simply believe it's truly is an excuse to still live in your present sin. The dispute of Christianity is not that God hasn't given hope. In fact, I'd like to tell you there was a time when Billy Graham had traveled, began traveling on the world scene. And I'll never forget what he wrote in his book. And he said the German chancellor turned to Billy Graham and said, Billy, I've wanted to ask you a question for a long time. Do you truly believe in the bodily, literal resurrection of Jesus Christ? Billy said, yes, I do. Because if I didn't believe in the bodily resurrection of Christ, I'd have no gospel to preach at all. It said then that the German chancellor, still staring out the window, waited a moment and then turned to Billy Graham and said, Sir, as far as I know and all that I've thought about and studied, I also believe outside of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there simply is no hope for humanity. And that was the end of their conversation. And so today as a preacher of righteousness, I tell you outside of that resurrection that we are preparing our hearts for, there's no hope. For anybody, anywhere. And that's why you don't see an atheist at the graveside declaring the gospel pure and strong. You see them disputing. In fact, this week I've noticed the voice of... of, Have you ever heard the voice of a devil? They can come in many different ways. Sometimes they'll call you on the phone. you got to be careful. You know what they'll say? Did God say? Just like the original voice of the devil. They'll get you to question something. God. Now, what is going on in our days? Everyone wants you to question what you believe. There's no problem with question. We just need to have the foundation for what the Bible taught us was absolutely true. We need to ground and settle our faith upon the truth of the Word of God and know that God has done something solid enough that we could give it to somebody else. I'd like to begin to go over as we look at the death of Jesus Christ. There are five specific points where even contemporary historians say, whether they be Christian or non-Christian, five points where they say they all agree. There are five points where all can agree on these terms. And although they have been disputed at times, the majority, again I say the contemporary majority of studiers of the day, all agree on these five. The first is that there was a man named Jesus Christ born during the time period the Bible says he was born. That seems simple, elementary, but that's what they can all agree on. They also agree that during the time he was born, in this one point, that he was a penniless preacher out of Nazareth, born in Bethlehem. But look at how Jesus Christ, by this one man's death, has affected all of humanity and even history. They even measure time by him, B.C. and A.D. Do you ever notice that? He got time measured by him. The point of his birth? I know of no other man that really began to make this kind of a mark on society or humanity or the world alone other than Jesus Christ. Amen. The second point they can all agree on is that their Pilate, a man named Pilate of the, the Roman leaders, did sentence a man to death named Jesus Christ. He did sentence him to death during this time. These are the first two points. Number one, he was born during the time period. Number two, a man named Pilate did sentence a man named Jesus to death during the time period of the biblical framework. Number three, they all agree also that the tomb that this man Jesus was buried in was a tomb owned by somebody with a lot of money. The Bible tells us his name was Joseph of Arimathea and that he was a leader in the Sanhedrin and that this man begged the body of Jesus is what the Bible says. All historians agree. Joseph of Arimathea did 
likely have the ownership of the tomb whereby the Bible explains to us Jesus was buried and they would roll a rock over the tomb to seal it. And it was only the elite of the day who would have this kind of a burial spot. He gave his spot to Christ. They all agree that following this crucifixion of the man named Jesus, a Sunday morning after his crucifixion, they agree on this. The tomb was empty. They agreed that it was empty. Now, there were disputes on what happened. Even in the Bible, you see the, those that were supposed to guard the tomb go back and say, someone stole him away. So you see, early on, you see the lie beginning to take place. But nonetheless, they all could agree that the tomb was stated to be empty. That was the very irony of where they were at historically. This tomb was declared empty. Number four, we know for sure that he was seen of singles of people, historically, and multiples. In fact, this text of Scripture in Corinthians 15 tells us he was seen of Cephas. And then above 500. And then goes down, the apostle talks about seeing him also. This means that there were not just one group of people, but multiples of people who on the behalf of not only the Gospels, but the testimony of Christ, seen Him and historically has been accounted singles, multiples, and many above 500, the Scripture says, seen Jesus Christ of Nazareth after His crucifixion. Number five, and I believe this is the one that is most powerful for me. There were 11 men left. Judas had betrayed. 11 men left. They walked with Jesus. They fed Him. They seen Him. They heard Him. They walked. And Are you with me? This one last historical proof. Let me state it before I go any further. All 11 of these men died... 30 and 40 years after the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ, and not one of them changed their story. Eleven men, 30 to 40 years later, in different towns on different continents, not one of them changed their story. You say, why is that important? Because I know a lot of people, if you read the papers, and they say they've seen Elvis. Can you find me 11 that 30 and 40 years later will die on a cross upside down, some of them with their family members, or be bludgeoned to death, not willing to change the story that they had fed and walked with the resurrected Christ? I don't know of a group of people anywhere. And I, to be quite honest with you, if I was making up a story before I got 30 years down the road, I would absolutely, and they begin to take my wife and five children and say, I will kill them first, letting you watch this martyrdom's death, and then I will kill you before they got to that. If it were a made-up story, I can assure you, I would admit it and say, look, at least I'm making up the story. We didn't really feed him, but not one of the 11 men represented by the Gospels there at the time of the resurrection ever changed their story anywhere in, in history. Although today we have all the disputes, we're not worried about the dispute, we're learning the Word of God today. Amen? So there are five historic proofs, and at least agreed upon by the contemporaries of our day. Now I want to get to this, our last 
place of Scripture, and I want to preach and close in, in this spot. John chapter 12, verse 20. I'm dealing with the death of Jesus today. In the next two weeks, we will deal with death and burial. And of course, on the third Sunday, we will deal with resurrection. But J- Jesus used this wonderful analogy. I love this simple analogy He used when it comes to His death. And it's found in John chapter 12, verse 20 through 24. Please listen carefully to what it says. And there were certain Greeks among them that came to worship at the feast. And the same came therefore to Philip, which was a Bethsaida of Galilee, and desired him, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. In other words, we want to see Jesus. Philip comes to tell Andrew, and again, Andrew and Philip tell Jesus. What do they tell him? Lord, somebody wants to see you. And Jesus answered them. He did an amazing thing here. Look at this. He said, the hour is come, not the day, not the week, not the year. He said, the hour is come that the Son of Man is going to be glorified. Now, wait, this is a powerful statement. The hour is come, the Son of Man is now going to be glorified. What he's saying, it's come, my time is now upon us. I'm about to be glorified by God. And here's what he says concerning this glorification. Verily, verily, we learned in our home group last week, verily, verily, or truth, truth, two times, verily, verily, he's saying truth, truth. This, he, you really, I mean, I got that last week. In our home study, we learned that verily, verily. So he doesn't just give you any analogy here. Jesus, before he's about to give you this small, seemingly loaded up analogy or parable, he does this, truth, truth. And here's what he does. I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall in the ground and die, it abides alone. But if it die, it brings forth much fruit. Simple, but remember, Truth, truth, this corn of wheat has to fall on the earth and die or it abides alone. He just told them, my hour has come. Now, can you, let's get a real look at this. I mean, Jesus has been like he's been born of a virgin. You know, we didn't see much written about him until he was 12 years old. So there's a whole lot we don't know. There's actually quite a bit we don't know. There's probably a lot that happened that we don't get to know because the Bible said had they written in books all that Jesus did... The world wouldn't contain the books. Are you with me? I mean, let's get practical about this. Like, we have a written copy of God's Word, and, and I'm not, I think after Resurrection Day, I'm going to do a series on the garden, and then I want to do a series on the most popular atheist and argumentative questions against Scripture and the Bible right after that. So we'll deal with some of these issues down the road. But nonetheless, Jesus, born of a virgin, 12 years we don't see much, then here He comes, and then we don't see Him again much until He's baptized. At 30 years old, He walks over the hill. John the Baptist, His cousin, says, There's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And boy, the ministry at Galilee really starts, and He starts doing all these things, preaching in the synagogue, healing the sick, feeding the 5,000, responding to the adults, adulterous woman, raising a 12-year-old from the dead. I mean, you got to admit, he is busy in ministry. And wherever he went, he was up to something. Did you notice that Jesus did most of his work on his way to do something else? 
Are we too busy at times to do what God's asked us to do because we've got our own agenda? Or would we take the time like Christ did that when we're on our way to work, we're really not late. This person isn't getting in our way. When I'm on the telephone or at the office or going to do whatever I'm doing, do I really have time to stop for the beggar? Do I have time to stop for the hungry? Do I take time for this? Or are they just in our way? And has God provided us the most, the best ministry opportunity just living our everyday life and taking the occasion when it comes? Because Jesus was always on His way somewhere until he stopped to do a miracle. But he does this analogy, this parable, if you will. And he says to them, my father's going to glorify me. And I don't think we even really can preach. There's no way I can cover in the time we have what he was doing. But what he was saying is that God was going to glorify his son. Now you have to remember, the Bible says that Jesus was crucified before the foundation of the world. That doesn't mean literally he was crucified. But in the Godhead, the kind of love that was so vast was agreed upon in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that when Christ came out of that that virgin, that he was set on the stage at the exact right time God wanted him to be there. Are you with me on this? I mean, he was there. It wasn't an accident. The Bible says that in the fullness of time, when the fullness of time had come, he was born of a virgin under the law. He came right when God wanted him to come. But see, in Genesis, the Bible says that he was going to be, God prophesied to the serpent, said, your seed and her seed are going to hate one another. But she's going to have a seed that's going to bruise your head. And I'll tell you, it's going to bruise his heel. This meant that Christ was going to come one day. And, oh, serpent, you may have deceived Eve this time. But I'm bringing the answer to all of humanity through my son, Jesus Christ. This was the seed. Now think of the seed that God promised was going to come. Now comes, you have God wanting to glorify his son. And now he uses this neat garden thing. I love it. God's a gardener. He's a farmer. And God begins to say, hey, guess what? The way God glorifies me is the corn of wheat has to fall in the earth and die. Or it falls in the earth and dies or it's going to bite alone. How many of you know we're all getting our gardens ready? Many farmers got all the fields this year disked up, chiseled up, plowed up. The terraces are up. And they're getting ready to plant corn. So the corn of wheat, now we're not planting wheat right now, we're planting corn, that's okay. But you know what you have to do, you get the soil bed ready. Can I ask you one question? How well was the soil bed prepared for Jesus? Apparently it was the exact right time, but I'm not sure I would have threw him in a soil bed with Herod, wanting to kill all the firstborn in the land. I'm not sure I would have brought him when the church was stagnant, when the synagogue couldn't do its job. I'm not sure I'd have brought him during this time, but God knew the exact right time. He wasn't scared of the reproach of Jesus Christ or the kind of rejection he would get. This was a seed, according to 1 Peter, that would be the kind of seed that's incorruptible and indestructible. That meant a lion can't eat it, water can't drown it, fire can't burn it. This is a seed of all the ages everywhere. And if you look at Death not from the ground looking up, but the death of Jesus from the heavens looking down. You can read Psalm 22. And God was glorifying Himself in the Son of God who was also the Son of Man stretching Himself to the will of God. But God would glorify. And He says, the corn of wheat's going to have to fall on the earth and die. Today I'm preaching on the death of Jesus. Why did Jesus have to die? Because if He didn't die, He couldn't bring the first fruits unto God. Except He died, you wouldn't have a chance to die to your sin. To die to yourself by faith and believe in the only begotten of God.
Now, as we prepare the soil of our hearts today to receive a message on resurrection morning that I believe we could bring where anything's possible with God in your life, I want to talk about the seed for just a minute. I used to like to go, Julie and I like to go into the central part of, I better not say where, but we like to buy seeds. It makes me excited to walk in and see all these options. And they've got these little bins. And they're literally like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and sometimes thousands of seeds in a little bin. You ever been to a place like that? And you're wondering what kind and what it'll produce and whether it's a hybrid tomato, what kind of pepper you've got. And there's all these options and and you can just take them by the pound and sometimes one pound. You might have literally hundreds of seeds. You've been to a spot like that? And when you think about this seed of Christ falling into the earth, so to speak... I mean, I like to prepare the soil bed just right to make sure it gets where it goes. Can I say to you that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten seed? He gave the only one. Although I may have many options when I go to the farm store. God took the only begotten. There was only one. There wasn't a thousand to pick from. He wasn't procreated. He was begotten out of the Father. He was so much like Him. He was Him. That Philip said, can you show me the Father? He said, when you take a look at me, you've seen the Father. I look just like my dad. I talk like Him. I walk like Him. I do what He says. I do His will. That's what Jesus said when He was in the earth. I do all this. I'm I'm my daddy all over. I'm the begotten. So when God looked in the bin, He was about to plant the glory of Himself into the earth that day. It wasn't a bunch of bins with hundreds and thousands of seeds and He didn't pick the tallest and the brightest. He picked the only one that was ever there from creation who was alive and well in the Godhead. He picked the one where actually love preceded life and God agreed together and knew that they could crucify this thing in order to bring us to Himself. And now the seed was falling into the earth. So when God looked in all the bins, you would have to look down in the crack of one bin to find one seed. But guess what? Would you plant all of your hope and all that you have for all generations on one seed to plant in your garden to feed your family and the multiple families and generations for years to come throughout eternity? No, but God did. But God did. And when we talk about the death of Christ, we must understand this death had to come into the earth. This Son of God was the only seed. He was a seed that would bruise the head of the serpent. It would bruise His heel. But He was alive and well in a generation that was totally rejecting Him. There was no place for Him to be born. He grew a bit older and there was no place for Him in the church. He kept going. His family rejected Him. And before He was buried, He was crucified outside the city in what was no more than a trash dump. So he knew what rejection was, but this seed had brought such hope to all of humanity. Doesn't matter who disputes us or five points that I give you in the beginning of the sermon. This was the seed of all the ages. This was the glory of God that must come and identify with our humanity as the son of man and die the death. So that when you go to the graveside, you don't have to mourn when you leave. If they've had faith in Christ and you place your faith in Christ today, you can go with the hope that's built upon the ages where God is provided and become victorious. And what happened was when he crawled up on that tree to die, stretched between heaven and earth, God began to deliver the blow to him that caused the seed to die. All of the sin of the world. Would you take one seed 
and count all your glory and all your existence upon one seed out of the bins of the farm store? Would you bring one tomato seed home and say, this is the only one we'll ever have? And it's going to have to feed you and your children and your children's children's children and then their children's children's children as far as you can see. And after 10,000 years, you'll be no closer. And I hope this one seed's enough to get enough tomatoes for 10,000 generations down the road. Would you do that? I don't know. I wouldn't. I don't know what kind of, if I'm a good enough gardener to get this one seed. Last year, I got rained out in one storm. But God that day on Golgotha's hill had begun to show to the world the seed that was promised in Genesis. He had come forth knowing that he must die in order to bring the first fruits unto God and to be glorified by his father. This one seed crawled upon one cross and delivered through one death, one resurrection. What will God Use that death for in our lives. Thanks for listening to today's broadcast. If you would like to learn more about our church, we would love to hear from you. Our telephone number is 620-848-3347. Or you may write to us at Post Office Box 400, Riverton, Kansas 66770. We're also on Facebook and online at RivertonFBC.com. The church is located just two blocks north of the Riverton Quick Stop and one block west on Bluebird Lane or one block south of Community Bank and Trust and one block east also on Bluebird Lane. Our worship services are Sunday mornings at 1045 and Wednesday nights at 7. We also have small group Bible studies available for children, youth, and adults. On behalf of Brother Aaron Williams and the entire congregation at FBCR, this is Downtown Keith Brown inviting you to join us again next Sunday morning for another exciting message from God's Word. Have a great week and God bless.